Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Jeff Most and Tom Welling, co-creator and star of new action drama Professionals, backed by Germany's Leonine and Nordic streamer Viaplay, and Andrea Jackson, chief executive of Magnify Media, on the recent sale of her distribution business to Plimsoll Productions. Smallville lead Tom Welling and Brendan Fraser, best known for his turns in big-screen franchise The Mummy, star in all-action drama Professionals, about a group of private military contractors hired by a tech billionaire to investigate the explosion of one of his space rockets. Co-creator and co-showrunner Jeff Most and Welling, who's also an exec producer, spoke with Michael Picard about the development and production of the series, which is backed by Germany's Leonine, distributed by Rainmaker Content, and has Nordic Streamer Viaplay as its anchor platform. The series is about private military contractors and their lives, uh, protecting billionaires and corporations in the executive security end of the uh, PMC, private military contracting business, which is a $245 billion a year business, which very little is known about. And uh, these are highly skilled professionals who ply their trade in every imaginable sense from being both a, you know, a defense for high profile individuals and the, the 1% and, and major corporations around the world. And not only are they on the defensive side, they are often called upon to do things that are on, on the offensive side of things to basically be proactive uh, against uh, anybody who might incur upon the uh, ones they are protecting, the individuals or the corporations. And our show is all about the team that is assembled by Captain Vincent Corbo, played by uh, our esteemed lead, Tom Welling, who goes to work after a an explosion, perhaps sabotage, uh, of a rocket carrying a medical satellite at launch uh, basically disintegrates. And unlike the way things were done when rockets were launched 30, 40 years ago, uh, even 20 years ago. These are protected by basically uh, private military contractors for hire. They're working for a dollar, a euro, a pound. Uh, they're not working for God and country. And so uh, there's duplicitousness involved. There's uh, obviously a lot at stake when you lift off uh, uh, a rocket. And uh, in this particular story, uh, not only has that rocket been attacked, the entire corporation and family behind a major international company are under attack from, from all sides. And uh, so it becomes the, the job and duty of uh, Tom Welling, who is a character of Vincent Corbett, who is somebody who can't be bought off, uh, has a code, and is willing to go uh, the extra mile to protect those he's been uh, put in charge of. And Tom, um, uh, in episode one, we hear a bit about Vincent's sort of background in, in terms of he was in the Foreign Legion and he's obviously travelled around and, and been involved in a few uh, you know skirmishes and scrapes along the way. Can you tell us a bit about him, how we meet him, and a bit about how he gets kind of embroiled in this uh, in this plot. Yeah, um, what I really liked about Vincent was we find him sort of in the situation where he's, he's sort of like a been there, done that kind of guy, maybe done everything for other people, for money, for other countries, and we find him in a place where he's now decided he's going to live for himself in his own life. That, of course, is interrupted um, by uh, his past coming back and needing his help, and he kind of doesn't want to do it. He'd rather just stay in his cabin and work on the cabin and work on his boat, but he's enticed to come out to help other people and God, you know, unfortunately what he really doesn't want to do is care about these people. Um, but Brendan Fraser brings this really 
likability to the billionaire character, along with the rest of the cast, where it's the inner um, playing of the relationships that I found a lot of fun. A lot of the banter and, and fun and excitement that you see between the characters, that was allowed for us to kind of sort out on set as well. And Jeff gave us a lot of play in that area. Uh, so Vincent's sort of thrown right back into the midst of things and a little more complicated emotionally and physically than he initially wanted, but then finds himself really wanting to, to help people, help Peter and help his team around him. And so when when it came to casting, I guess we should talk about, because it's, it's obviously a big cast, lots of characters and, and characters and cast from all over the world. Can you tell us a bit about the casting process and um, how, you know, you, you brought the team together on set? We, uh, we looked to find really great, versatile actors who had uh, done things on the international stage who could handle both, you know, the dramatic sides of the roles and the lighter sides, because we have a lot of fun. Uh, the tone here is, you know, flip and fun, uh, you know, something akin to Mission Impossible, the James Bond movies. There's serious, uh, obviously, matters that are being dealt with. But, you know, you have gallows humor between Tom and his team. Uh, we have a lot of, on the family side, on the, on the wealthy family side, you know, a, a lot of playfulness as well and, and backstabbing and so forth. And we, we wanted it to be both grounded and humorous and fun and make the most of all we could. So, you know, we really searched quite hard for the best actors. And uh, we, we got a lot of input from our international distributor, Leonie, uh, who helped us with, uh, you know, suggestions for the German actors. We were delighted we found uh, Ken Dukin, who really had, uh, you know, a tremendous talent to, to do everything that the role was needed from from, uh, from lighter lighter and even more physical comedic stuff to being quite serious and threatening. And, you know, we found that uh, also with the villain. Uh, I don't want to give anything away, but we have, we have a, a villainous character, I should say, played by August Wittgenstein, who uh, was a favorite also of our NENT group, Via Play, who are, are you know, our, our first pre-sale and, and our anchor broadcaster. And uh, they were very helpful. You know, and Elena Naya, who um, uh, was also a favorite, you know, of our international partners at both uh, Leonine and Via Play. And, and, and uh, we were assisted uh, as well by Roadside Attractions in America, who uh, assisted with our development. And uh, Howard Cohen, uh, the head of the company, uh, having been an agent, and had a lot of relationships. So we, we had access to actors and we really just sought to make sure that the mix was correct, that we could build this team and this world around Tom. Uh, Tom has an incredible ability to be likable, funny, hard and tough. And, you know, it, it, we, we set the mark with Tom's very varied talent. And, you know, it's a hard role to pull off. We wanted all those characters that we cast to be as adept at humor as they were at drama. And, uh, you know, I think that really shows and comes off and it, and it makes it such a pleasure and when you sit down and get to enjoy the episodes well I'll even say we one of our, one of the scenes that we shot um, out in on the uh, not the docks but like in, in on the pillar out in Ireland and Sahid it was my first scene with him and I remember I, I mean I knew who he was I'd never met him and we're in this scene it's a very powerful important scene and I remember the first take I hesitated a second and I realized that I was just really happy and excited that I was working with this guy and then it was, we kind of we carried on and he brought so much energy and fun to it and um it was just that sort of thing where we all had a great time offset and i think that translates to the camaraderie that you're going to see on screen i think you'll see with 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 brendan fraser and tom welling's yeah. character particularly these guys just have a an energy about them and you know a way to play off each other and a camaraderie and it, it just was wonderful and it grows throughout uh the entire show tom, tom is obviously at, at first 
an employee of this billionaire. Brendan Fraser's character is, is and Brendan Fraser brings so much to the role: uh, humor, intelligence, uh, his wit is is amazing. And 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 the relationship truly changes, where these guys become best buddies and pals, all in it together. And uh, you know that was wonderful to watch unfold. Uh, and uh, yeah, we we had uh, in addition to uh, in the leads, Elena uh, uh, Naya, who I was just mentioning, who who uh, is, is an incredible actress of depth. Said Tagmawe, who um, brings uh, an incredible fierceness and background, uh, you know, and toughness. We, we really have a, a splendid cast and, and, you know, just we're very blessed uh, to have all this talent put together for our first season. So we're very excited. And, and, and then like, not, not to say that we were surprised, but there were many times on set where, you know, a take would be done and we, people would look at each other like, that was really good. Yeah, that was really good. Like, that was, that was really good what we did there. Like, let's keep, let's keep going. And Jeff was always supportive about, cool, now mix it up, do it again try different you know and because we all fell into these really great fun relationships between us as actors and like i said the characters i think just blossomed as a result jeff can you take us back to that the origin point of of the series and you've mentioned action and there's lots of humor in the show what was it that you were trying to make from the outset and how have you developed it to get to this point i've been fascinated by professionals by these guys who uh roam the planet do this incredible work have this incredible incredible skill set you know on average it takes about a million dollars just to train an individual in all of the practices that they learn uh, working for, you know, the elite branches of military around the world. And so, you know, it, it, it was just an area of interest for me. And there's never been a show that really focused on their lives, their careers, what they go through. And, you know, I, I just applied that rule of thumb, you know, how can we really get into the mindset of these guys and not just see them as security people that surround these very illustrious figures. And, uh, you know, they're oftentimes fish out of water. So it, it really gives us that opportunity to play off of what it must be like for an aud- any audience member to be a fly on the wall for all of these mega goings on that occur in the most elite and powerful offices and uh, and, and homes around the world. Um, so, you know, we, we, we put a lot of effort into trying to find the right tone and find the, the right way into the story. And uh, we had just a, a great creative environment. It was an independently produced television show. Uh, there weren't, you know, a lot of people in, in offices who would just dial in and, you know, uh, tell us what they were looking for. We, we really made it a, a very collaborative environment. And I think out of that, we really get the spirit of what we were trying to achieve with everyone's thousand percent input into what we were doing because we were left to our own devices and we were able to get the creative juices of our great cast uh, our great head writer, Michael Cleary, all the writers that, that worked under Kim and, you know, and our great directors, Baron and Lurie, uh, Schmidt, Tabang Malaya and Kieran Donnelly, first class A-list directors from around the world who lent their, you know, input into this. So it was a really collaborative effort and, and that story just grew and, and mushroomed and, and really took you know, an emotional hold of all of us. And, and uh, we just we had a great all making it because of that. Yeah, and, and, and in it being an independent endeavor, trust me, this is not a student film. I mean, this thing is huge. Huge. I mean, we have like explosions with rockets. We have, you know, big guns. We have helicopters flying where maybe they shouldn't be sometimes. I'm, I'm not sure we broke any rules, but like the thing's epic. It was big and powerful every day. It was like a big budget film. Um, but like Jeff said, it allowed us the freedom of our own opinion and our own style at this point. And I think that, you know, with, I mean, for a season two, it's only going to be bigger and better and badder and faster. So um, that would be fun. Just to add to that, we, to our knowledge, are the biggest budgeted independently 
produced television series ever made without a an American network uh, involved at the start. Uh, or, and, and we only did this with, uh, you know, a, uh, our German company, Leonine, and a pre-sale to uh, RTL2 and to Viaplay, our anchor broadcaster, NENT Entertainment, you know, and with, with great support from them, it was a, a wonderful experience. We, we certainly set out to make a big budgeted Hollywood style epic show, but do it independently. And, you know, that that's what really helps give it a, a very clear voice. And uh, as, as Tom said, I mean, we, we certainly know that it, it, whether it was a studio produced show or not, it certainly looks like one. And certainly we stand up to the budgets of major premium produced material uh, that uh, the Hollywood majors are doing and uh, the streamers. So we're very proud of that. Tom, I just wanted to touch on the fact that you're the star, but you're also an executive producer behind the scenes. Can you talk a bit about your preparation for your on-screen role, but then also tell us a bit about how involved you were behind the scenes as well? Well, I did as much research as I could into the world of these guys. The problem is um, they're not just walking down the street and they're also not just willing to like talk to you. We had guys on set when we were in Africa who that, that was their job to protect us in certain locations. They were a little more forthcoming, but there were situations where, you know, maybe it was a fight sequence or something we were doing with a gun and I'd turn and be like, is this what you do? And sometimes we'd be like, no, but it's cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's moments that we play with. They're like, yeah, you'd never do that. But it looks cool on camera, um, that kind of thing. And then I think was, you know, just trying to help out and be supportive. And, um, you know, if we came up against any roadblocks, try to figure out how to work through them, um, whether it's on set or not, because, you know, everything we did was mostly daylight dependent. Uh, when we were down in Africa, I think it was three months where it didn't rain once, but we could only really shoot during the day because of the way the show works. We're always on location. We're always outdoors. We have a few scenes that are inside, basically when the crew, when the, my team would come together and sort of strategize how we're going to go about solving the issue at hand but this is a big show outside and so there was you know I think day to day there were a lot of fun challenges um, and we always kind of ended up doing the cooler thing which I always thought was fun it was never like no we don't we don't feel like doing that it was like how, how can we make it better how can we get the helicopter closer you know all the crazy things um, so I think for me um, Jeff and Michael they did a lot of stuff before we got down there and then I, I think you know keeping up with that and then being helpful on site that was sort of what I felt my role could be and whether whether it was a shot here or how do we pick up this and just lending any sort of version of experience I might have that could be helpful. We did this for four and a half months. We shot an awful lot of days. We put on average between first and second unit about 20 days of photography into each episode. And if you consider each 45 minute body of show is about half a movie, that's a, an extreme amount of photography. And of course it was needed for all the stunts and physical stuff we're doing, but we wanted to do everything in a way that was so filmic uh, and feature-like that these are not long talking head scenes. Our scenes or 45 seconds a page when when a, a talking head scene in, in a, a regular television show is about a minute and a half. Action goes about a minute. We are moving through things and we're having fun and we're very visual about everything so that it can work on an international stage and not just be so dialogue dependent and heavy. We really relied on these actors to be both physical and, and, and give everything off that they could and, and use their bodies uh, as well as relying on really fun, smart, witty dialogue and, and really intelligent writing. And obviously the the television industry's sort of been through a, quite a lot over the last few months with the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell us a bit about how you, you've managed to kind of continue through that? Were you still filming or did you just have to, you know, remotely post-produce? How, how have you been affected? Well, we, we finished about a year ago uh, in September 2019 and we immediately got into post-production. But of course, most of the period prior to the COVID pandemic was spent on editing the episodes. When we got into completing post-production, handling video 
visual effects, uh, ADR, mixing, uh, color correction, all of the things that one does. It was quite, quite difficult. Uh, we couldn't all be in a room together, which was, which was highly unusual. We had to actually develop new practices. Uh, we had an amazing post-production house in Dublin, Ireland, Open Mill Lane, that actually took the experience and, and, and the head of the company actually lectured uh, others and, and was helping other companies because we were having developed on our toes you know, in the midst of everything going on, a way to get all of this done. And uh, I can say we were very fortunate to get in the can before COVID, but the post-production period was lengthened fairly dramatically by the pacing we had to move at. And uh, we just got very, we got a lucky stroke when uh, Windmill Lane was designated as an essential business because they were actually creating public service announcements for the Irish people and the government engaged them as the post house to, to do that. And so uh, we happened to be able to pick things up once that occurred, but it was still, of course, a challenge to do it all around the world. And uh, I mean, you've mentioned possible season two. What are your kind of hopes or ambitions for the, the longevity of the show? Well, it's all about Tom's character and his group, and, and it's all about putting him in the situations that these PMCs face, these private military contractors face on a daily basis. They are called at a, at a moment's notice. They have to make a decision about whether or not it's something they want to involve themselves in. We have. I don't want to give away the second season, but we, we've worked up something that we're truly excited about, and, and it really puts all of Tom's talents to work, which, which we're very excited about, uh, and gets to show another side of his character we didn't really put on display in this first season. So yeah, we, we, we're we gung-ho. Uh, we see this as a, a returning season that has a lot of stories to tell, and many seasons of professionals to be made. Well, I mean, I don't know, I don't know about you, John, I can't wait to just start shooting again. Exactly. I mean... I mean <laughs> And that's where that's where we have a lot of fun. Um, I just hope we can we can get going as soon as you know everything works out and allows us to do so. Because I think as, as great as season one is, you always learn so much after season one. That's why season two almost everything is better about every show. And I think this is going to be more dialed in and, and more dynamic and more spectacular. Jeff Most and Tom Welling. You can see the video version of that interview and watch a premiere of the first episode by visiting our C21 Screenings video portal now. UK indie Plimsoll Productions took full ownership of distributor Magnify Media in September. The latter's founder and chief executive, Andrea Jackson, who previously founded Zeal Entertainment, which she sold to GRG, spoke to Clive Whittingham about what this latest deal means for her company. She also reflects on what did and didn't work during this year's inaugural digital edition of MIPCOM and compares the opposite directions of the factual and format sales markets during the pandemic. So, well, Plimsoll have had a minority stake since 2016. So we've been working together for quite a long time now. So it was a really sort of a, a natural progression of the two companies working together with, you know, that had been a very successful collaboration over the last few years. And so, you know, that was the, the, the kind of the right and natural combination of that combination. And yeah, it's great. I'm delighted. They're, a, you know, a wonderful company to work with. They, you know, their content is, you know, really fantastic, exceptional and, and, and very strong across a number of different genres. So yeah, we couldn't be more delighted. How does your slate divide up between their content and third party content? 
it's about 50-50 in terms of Pimsoul and third party. And it also kind of splits fairly evenly in terms of our distribution of finished programmes and of formats. And how will this deal change uh, your operations day to day, if at all? Really, um, it, it doesn't really change anything. I mean, we continue to want to be very focused on only working with content that we really love. We have quite a, a succinct number of, of relationships with producers and we look to kind of work a lot with them on their titles. So none of that changes. We are better resourced now, which is obviously great. And up until now, we've been working with a network of agents, many of whom were not exclusive to Magnify. And what we've been able to do already is is change that model slightly, because also because we've reached a a size now where it it makes more sense for us as a business to have people working in perhaps a more traditional way. So we have already hired um, Becky Payne, who's working uh, with us now exclusively, and also just now uh, having closed the deal with Cecilia Ingebrigtsen, who's based in Stockholm, and she's she's been working with us for six years uh, as an agent, and now we've kind of you know solidified that that arrangement, and now working together in a more traditional way. So that, all of that feels really exciting, and and you know that will benefit all of the producers that we represent and work with, and it just helps us do what we do more effectively. But we still on on top of people who are you know if you like kind of exclusive to magnify we also still the the relationships we have with our agents which are non-exclusive are still really valuable and help us effectively reach into territories that would be harder for you know you know a more traditional sales team to be able to be operational in we're coming off the back of the first digital mipcom how was that whole week and experience for you as a as a distributor i mean if it actually feels quite good i mean obviously we there's things we miss the kind of the human aspect and the and the fun aspect of, of what we do we miss that but in terms in business terms actually it's felt okay I don't know if it's been colored by the fact that I feel our slate is particularly good this market so that helps but we never had a traditional infrastructure when I set the business up six years ago I you know I, I wanted to kind of rethink that traditional paradigm and do things a bit differently because it never felt necessary to have a big office in central London or a big expensive stand in the palais so we never had that everybody was always working remotely and we we always had these good shared online systems and, and, and a website that's clever and, and, and helps us do what we do well. So n- none of that needed rethinking. So for us to be able to approach MIPCOM without it, you know, without being too sort of thrown by the the online nature of it, I think was perhaps easier than it might have been for, for other companies who were perhaps more used to working in, in different ways. So we did, um, we held two different live showcases, one for our formats slate and one for a finished program slate and I pitched our new titles on a you know via zoom on this this live stream which felt risky because it could have gone wrong you know that it might not have worked but it did you know and so for our formats showcase we had 110 different buyers from around the world who all turned up and we could see them and people were asking questions and it was interactive and actually it felt brilliant it felt really cool it felt really nice to see some of the faces that normally we would see on the quasette but all together in this slightly kind of unusual 
useful way and it felt like an effective way to be able to present the ideas to all of those people in that situation. And then on top of that, I'm sure like everybody else is doing, the sales team have all done, you know, one-to-one pitches via Zoom. But I think something we've all noticed is rather than having to condense our pitches into half-hour slots in three days, you know, our pitches have run over what's probably nearly a month and most of the pitches are an hour long. And so, you know, there's there's advantage in that too. So what what we've really tried to do is is not sort of think about what it used to be like or, or waste any time of bemoaning the fact that it's different but just kind of embracing it for what it is and actually there there are real efficiencies in in this I mean I'm sure that if we continue working this way it will become harder perhaps to kind of command attention or get broadcasters to continue to engage perhaps maybe maybe there'll be a you know a fatigue that will that will come but it certainly felt in in this market that everybody was very engaged and that we've had you know a a really effective way of of communicating. Is the theory that this year's actually been quite a good time to be a distributor of finished tape has that turned out to be true because obviously productions have fallen over broadcasters have slots to fill finished tape wise have you found that yes we have we have um certainly over the summer there were some delays on our formats business um so some productions pushed back i don't think we've actually lost any business but it's been pushed back into the last part of 2020 or, or so, and, and some things into 2021 so that, that so that business is definitely been impacted but I I would say that it's been more than offset by increased opportunities for finished program sales obviously I'm looking into the next six 12 month period and 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 the Again, there are some delays of finished programs coming down the pipeline that, you know, we want to be able to be selling over the next six to 12 month period. So, you know, we have to look how we navigate that. But broadly speaking, for us, at least, I think that we certainly were in no worse position than we would have been. And I think probably on balance, there's been perhaps more upside at this moment in time in terms of the content that's come through to us and the opportunities that we've been able to find for it. On the event side of things, what do you think 2021 looks like? Are we all going to go back to the same number of events and same style of events that we had before or is it going to be a hybrid or will we just stick to endless zoom meetings um i i don't think so i don't i think it's very unlikely that there's going to be very many big events of any nature in the first half of 2021 i think that looks very unlikely i think when it becomes safe to meet again as people together in the same room i think we'll all really welcome that but my inclination is that will happen in smaller environments you know perhaps the the things that were happening already where distributors got invited to come and pitch to broadcasters or broad smaller broadcasting groups rather than it being 5,000 people meeting together at one big market and I would imagine certainly we can see there have been advantages in 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 the cost savings that have come with not having you know a a large presence at at a big traditional market I think there's there's you know there's advantage that we can all see and I think it's an opportunity for us all to rethink how we approach this you know we can all get kind of stuck in 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 a trap of doing things a certain way because it's always been done that way and as I've said I've always been interested in trying to rethink that and I find it even more interesting when everything's disrupted and we're all doing it a bit differently I think there's tons of opportunity in that and it's it's actually quite refreshing to not just be on this hamster wheel 
feel that where you've got these certain points in the calendar that you respond to kind of automatically, there's, there's, you know, there's an opportunity here, I think, for all of us, sellers and buyers, to think about how we do things and, and, and see if there are different and more effective ways of doing it. And I, I find that quite exciting. As we said, there's been a bit of a rush on finish tape in 2020 to fill slots with production challenged at the moment sort of coming back and then going away again and new lockdowns it looks like it's going to be a tough winter what does the situation look like in 2021 when your finished tape that you've already got has been sold but your production is delayed is 2020 was the golden year of the distributor is 2021 looking decidedly more dice <laughs> I mean at the moment certainly if I look at the various different productions that I've got coming down the pipeline from companies like Plimsoll but also from our third party producers very little is currently disrupted. It's actually quite extraordinary the the ways in which production companies are circumventing the complexities of getting filming done. Whether that's hiring local crews in you know far flung territories, and also using different filming techniques. That's something that I know Plimsoll have been doing as well. But there's there's been again a myriad of, of ways in which companies have responded to this. So we don't actually have anything right now that's not filming that would have been. Now, obviously, I don't know what it's going to look like in three, six, nine months time. But but right now, everything is where it should be. And everything that was delayed, it may still be slightly delayed, but it is filming. You had some new formats on your MIPCOM slate, as well as the um, completed program titles. Tell us a little bit about the, the formats, if you will. But then also, what sort of questions and concerns to broad broadcasters have around buying formats as opposed to finish tape at the moment because depending on what territory there's all sorts of challenges about how they're going to be produced right um and we have only launched titles that can be produced covid safely because i think that's that's the first thing that any broadcaster is evaluating alongside the top line of the idea you know so we've, we we all i think need to be realistic about how we can direct our time and energy at the moment so Good with Wood is, is a big launch for us. This comes from Plimsoll Productions and it's uh, it's being produced for Channel 4. And this was done in, in a bubble. So, you know, everybody on set for a six-week period. And this is it's, it's a huge production, but it has been done safely and can be done safely in other countries. And it's a search for the nation's best woodworker. So it sort of embraces the natural world it's set in ancient woodland and you have nine contestants who are each week going to create something extraordinary this incredible imaginative uh, feat made entirely out of wood so it could be a dream like bed or an iconic chair and then we've got our host who in the UK is Mel Gidroyk who was a host of, of Fake Off and two judges and the judges each week will eliminate one contestant out of the show at the end of the series one of them will be will be crowned the nation's best woodworker it is it's a big production I've, I've seen quite a, a, a lot of footage now from it and it's 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 quite extraordinary and I think that's appealing to broadcasters and producers because it embraces perhaps something that we all started to do in lots 
lockdown is, you know, just kind of slowing down a bit and taking pleasure in being creative and making stuff, and building stuff. And I think it taps into that kind of sensibility. And it, it's something that's, you know, broad skewing that the whole family can watch together, which again is something that I think most broadcasters are looking for. So we've had a, a brilliant response to that. That's been a, a, you know, a really strong launch for us. Similarly, a different, but equally, you know, the kind of content that seems to be resonating with broadcasters at the moment is, is a studio format that we, we are selling called The Night is Mine that, that comes from Norway, from the Oslo company. And this is, a, it's a twist on the talk show format where we have a celebrity who is being invited onto a, a primetime talk show, which they're told is going to be all about them. And that's true. But just as they're about to walk through the curtain onto the set, they're told that actually they are going to be the host of, of tonight's show. And as their friends, family, and all the important people from their career come out into the studio, they are going to interview them about themselves. And it's all been very carefully and comedically scripted. They have to read everything on the auto cue. They are a fish out of water. They've never done anything like this before. And the way that it's scripted, you know, it, there's, there's a lot of laughs in that. But something kind of magical happens as well, because when you remove the intermediary of the talk show host, and actually just have a conversation directly between a celebrity and their friends, family and the people in their life, there's a very honest and a different kind of conversation that you see happen than you would you know, normally get to participate in. So that's something that's, that's also buyers are responding well to. And I think, again, people are looking for something that's uplifting, entertaining, funny, something that the whole family can, can watch together and, again, can be produced safely uh, you know, in, in these times. Are you bothering with COVID content factors? actual documentaries that sort of thing is that demand there or are broadcasters just like no there's enough of that on the news we don't want that well we had um, already a documentary made by Rare TV called Contagion that was produced nearly two years ago which is absolutely fascinating in that it was looking at how a, a global pandemic could spread and they did an experiment where they used an, an app infected in inverted commas one person in a town in Sussex and then using app technology tracked how that virus would then spread amongst a community in a region of the UK and then across the UK and into rest of world and actually the app and the research that came about from that has been research that has been used in this pandemic and of course little did the production company know or we know when we acquired it that this was actually going to become so incredibly prescient but so that as you might expect has has sold very well for us and has been something that has very much chimed with the times but other than that and since that in terms of our acquisition strategy we've been looking more to seek programming that kind of brings light and and kind of more kind of uplifting positive values that, that offers kind of escapism if you like for viewers because that that seems to be what now broadcasters are looking for. Plimsoll obviously is, is Grant Mansfield's production company in Bristol which is a natural history hub. I'm interested is natural history the perfect genre for Covid because it's just two guys alone out in the wilderness filming usually sometimes only one guy or uh, is it a nightmare because you you having to fly crew 
those very long distances and international travel is challenged? I mean, where does natural history come out of it? I think it's probably both. But I think in terms of, and, and as I say, they they have met the, everything that they had in production, they are they are filming and managing to find ways around the, the difficulties that have been presented. So every, everything's on track. It's quite extraordinary. And I'm not quite sure how many countries they've got crews in at the moment, but it's, it's a long list and some very uh, far-reaching places. So the solutions have been found to all of that. And undoubtedly, natural history is having a boom right now. Broadcasters, I mean, we've been selling natural history for a long time, but we, we are having conversations now and selling to broadcasters natural history content for prime time where we wouldn't have been able to have those conversations a few years ago. So that's really interesting and really exciting for us. And, and that, could, that might be pure blue chip natural history, or it could be natural history in a, in a broader sense where there's, you know, either host-led or entertainment-infused somehow uh, natural history pieces. Um, but yeah, that, 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 without a doubt, that's, that's a really strong trend that we can see that that, that marketplace is, is, is opening up. And, you know, and it makes sense. I think it's, it's, it's in part an increased appetite to watch content as a family, which I think is happening more than ever and feels more important than ever before. But I think alongside all the, you know, the, 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 the consequence of, of, of this pandemic is a heightened awareness and realisation of how important our planet it is <laughs> and so it, I think it comes from that as much as anything else you know so the, the, this is part of something that I think is, is viewers everywhere care more and want to enjoy watching the beauty of the natural world. How are uh, license fees holding up from uh, let's say traditional linear broadcasters to start with because Channel 4 and others have been quite open about how much money has gone out of the ad market mm-hmm. are you finding that you're having to either sell for less than you were before or put together more and more complicated co-production deals or do you just uh, take it to a streamer instead? Different elements probably of, of all of that. I feel slightly that um, things are coloured because my for me, for Magnify, because our slate is I think especially strong and so I think broadcasters where they're acquiring landmark or noisy pieces of content to be competitive are still paying what they would have paid. I think for the content that isn't as must have, there's definitely pressure on prices without a doubt. And then in addition to that, there are also series where we need to find money for, from other places and we need to be creative about that. So we, I mean, on, on our slate, all of the content, I think, was fully funded. And so this has just been us taking that out and, and selling that and being able to command good license fees for it. Um, so that, that you know, that is still something that's very much happening. But undoubtedly, there are broadcasters that we have been talking to over the last few months who whose budgets are, are massively slashed and, and, and it's tough, you know. So, so it's. I think it's a mixed bag. I think it's really hard to make generalizations because it's different territory by territory and broadcaster by broadcaster. And actually, something we found quite refreshing in just in this last few weeks has been a number of broadcasters who had held back from acquiring during the last few months and now actually are sat on a pot of cash that they need to spend before the end of the year. And and that's been a conversation we've had with a number of different broadcasters who were in this sort of holding pattern, trying to figure out how to play things to try and see what was happening and actually now are spending. So that's 
been, been quite a nice uh, conclusion to, to arrive at in this kind of MIPCOM period. Are you anticipating next year or the year after less fully funded and more complicated co-production on your on your slate? It just feels like 2021 is going to be the year where I'm going to be doing lots of interviews about financing of, you know, how how shows get made rather than the shows themselves. Definitely. I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure that that will be increased. I mean, it was already, you know, a, a conversation and, 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 and things were increasingly moving in that direction. And, and I think that that very much so there, there will be more of that. What's next for you guys? You're well resourced now with the with the Plimsoll takeover. What new avenues are you looking to explore and, and expand into as we move into next year? Well, I've, over the last year or so, um, I've been building a scripted formats catalogue with some really innovative and distinctive content. And we've been sort of quietly working with that in certain key markets. And there's a number of those projects that are about to take off. And so that that feels quite exciting because that's that, that, that's 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 a new area for Magnify, um, and it's it's interesting, obviously, to be moving and uh, into the into the scripted business. But it's also interesting in terms of how those kinds of projects work for different platforms and different means of scheduling and marketing. And it just feels that the kind of creativity around these projects we're in a place of pioneering, really. And I just find that that really interesting. It's a whole different kind of storytelling because it's not just about the individual episodes themselves or the story that you see on screen but it's as much about the marketing and the publishing of the content and what happens virally around the, the content itself uh, particularly with the, the kinds of, of, of projects that we're working with most of which have been acquired from the Nordics and, and that's a, just a region that I love working with because I just always feel that they're quite a few years ahead of everywhere else so to it feels like a privilege to to see what they're doing and learn from their production and commissioning and, and publishing practices and experiments and, and you know be able to work with some of that content and look at how we bring that into, into other parts of the world. Something that the, the real kind of trend that I can see in that region is both the free-to-air broadcasters and the platforms really looking to find a way to get younger people to consume their content. You know, they see Instagram and other social media platforms as being their competitor, not other content platforms. It's YouTube and it's social media platforms. That's really who they're competing with. And their content is looking to pull in and have this younger demographic interact with and become part of a, of a conversation. And the ways in which they do that is so interesting and so effective. I mean, they're actually managing to, you know, to turn the curve on the decline of younger people consuming uh, you know, content in what we would consider perhaps more traditional ways. And so that's something that I find fascinating. And I don't doubt that this is something that is interesting to both linear channels and VOD platforms throughout the rest of the world. So that's an, that's an area that I've been looking at really closely. Andrea Jackson from Magnify Media. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast next week. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. Thank you.